From Georgetown University, this is Seeking Peace. I'm Milan Verveer, and this is Ashley Judd. It takes courage to disrupt harassment while it's happening, and it takes agency and voice, and agency and voice is what all girls and women around the world are entitled to. Over the years, Ashley Judd has become as well-known for her activism and leadership as she is for her A-list acting career, most recently helping ignite a firestorm that became the Me Too movement after being one of the first women to speak out about sexual harassment in Hollywood. Her work extends beyond all borders, As the Goodwill Ambassador for the United Nations Reproductive Health Agency, Judd has traveled the world, including humanitarian missions to the DRC and South Sudan. She continues to be a leader on giving voice to survivors of sexual violence in conflict zones. Later in the program, we bring you to Kosovo, where 20 years after the war with Serbia, rape survivors are finally being recognized as war victims. But first, Ashley Judd. I know that um, you have literally traveled the world meeting with many women and girls, uh, some of whom have been victims of sexual violence and human trafficking. Early in 2002, you made your first humanitarian trip to Southeast Asia. I wonder... What happened there? Did it did it have any uh, particular impact in setting your course going forward? It did. It was it was both shattering and profoundly motivating. And I really went Milan because I simply was invited, and I I was in this unique and strange position of being a well known person in in. America and in some parts of the world and an NGO called Population Services International, which has grassroots health programs in about 70 countries around the world, had reached out to me and asked if I would consider serving as an ambassador representing in particular their HIV AIDS prevention programs. And at the time, I was one of, one of, if not the highest paid female actors in the history of Hollywood. And I, that was something of which I wasn't even cognizant. I had become a working star in such a short amount of time with my first movie, Ruby in Paradise, winning the Sundance Film Festival, that being in in that acting world was just as abnormal as it can be. It was just my normal. But I wasn't particularly happy, and I wasn't fulfilled in some significant ways. And I didn't know what was wrong, but I was just kind of sick and tired of being sick and tired. And I knew that there was... More And I had almost joined the Peace Corps when I was 22 years old and I went to the different jungle, you know, Hollywood instead. And so this letter from from Population Services International reaching out to me came at a time when I had reached the up with which I could no longer put in the acting career. And I didn't know if it was a feminist agency and I wrote them back this treatise on my beliefs in gender and sexual equality. And they said, yes, we're a feminist agency. They kind of sort of, I think, laughed a little bit at how idealistic and earnest I was. And it was a great match. And they said, okay, well, your first trip is to the, you know, brothels in Phnom Penh and to the uh, International HIV AIDS Conference in Bangkok. And they put so much trust in me. And I took that responsibility very, very seriously. 
So my very first day was in this in this brothel, and I was actually being I was more being held by this transgender sex slave than I was holding her. And she was just weeping and telling me her whole story. And I thought, you know, my God, all I can do is bear witness to this reality and then do my my damn level best to share these stories on a global level, as well as details about grassroots solutions that can be taken to scale that help people and change norms and save lives. You know, hearing you, and I know personally, you have been to so many uh, conflict-affected areas, um, whether in Rwanda or South Sudan or the Democratic Republic of Congo. You've been to Ukraine, where the war still goes on in the East. I wonder, you meet with the women, you understand what they're going through in their lives, the difficulties, uh, what it's done to them. But have you also seen the impact um, that this violence has on the stability of communities and countries? Absolutely. Sustainable peace really does begin with a woman's bodily integrity and sexual autonomy, her ability to be intact, to be whole, not to be violated, her ability to regulate her fertility so she can choose if and when and how many children to have, her ability to access essential sustenance and uh, you know to to be able to walk to to get firewood to go to la source and get her water to be able to go to mills and agricultural fields without being raped and then to take products to market and you know sexual violence and conflict is used to humiliate and control ethnic groups and communities and we also have to link it to some really big state factors like failed states and in particular in DRC the conflict mineral mining that is so tremendously horrible in the east and when you know war and instability is profitable for a few and those profiteers are directly linked to the daily mass atrocities that girls and women and some boys and men endure. Yes, and maybe you can talk a little bit more about what this hunt, if you will, for minerals. We know Mm -hmm. that the DRC is rich in minerals and particularly coltan, which is Mm -hmm. used in cell phones and other electronics, has led to tremendous sexual violence uh, towards women in the region. And This conflict has gone on literally for years and years. Uh, There's no sign that it's ending anytime soon. Um, Have you seen solutions for justice that those who are perpetrating these crimes are paying for them in some way? The situation is both worsening and there are elements and degrees of hope. So in, in DRC... While there have been measures implemented to reduce state violence toward vulnerable people, in 2018, 40% of the rapes committed against girls and women by police were of girls and women who were in custody. So you've got improvements, yet you still have state actors and armed militia perpetrating Mm. the violence themselves. And there have been some prominent cases of prosecution, but the impunity is still largely there for both the 
you know, soldier on the uh, or the armed militia person on the grassroots level, as well as on the national level. So there's mm-hmm. a couple of steps forward and a couple of steps back. And a lot of the hope I see is through safe spaces for girls and women operated by agencies like UNFPA, the United Nations Agency for Sexual and Reproductive Health, where girls and women can come and they can participate in a craft and a trade so they can generate some incomes through something that they make. And if they're able to have some income, they can buy firewood instead of having to go look for the firewood. But the psych social Mm -hmm. programs are really what is so tremendous. There's a lot of trauma help and trauma work and trauma resolution that happens in those spaces where women can have strong female-to-female alliances and support each other. And there, you know, people get to tell their stories as well as sing and dance and find that resilience and that joy that is so improbable yet really does transform women's hearts and souls. I'm I'm just thinking about this blind woman with whom I was visiting in South Sudan, and she was quite elderly, and she was asking me for some sandals and a blanket. And those were not things that I had to give to her, and I was just wrecked over the way she was sharing with me, and I started to cry. And she said, oh, my granddaughter, I can tell that you are crying. Don't worry about the sandals and the blanket. You've given me your heart, which is the best thing you could have given me. And those are the kinds of things that can happen in these safe spaces where girls and women can come together. You know, that that is so real. And I, just by your recounting it, I can only appreciate how much impact it had on you. Why do you find it personally uh, so important to advocate uh, in this way? Hmm. I was a vulnerable kid, so I think that it's very much embedded in my personal story. My parents loved and adored me, and my family didn't work particularly well, and everyone was very distracted, and I wasn't cared for in the way that I should have been. And fortunately, because of my own recovery and my parents' beautiful humility and accountability, we are getting a massive redo. You know, my mom and I have a really tender and sweet relationship. My dad, <laughs> I can't even repeat the things that he says to me because he's 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 just the proudest dad in America. Let's put it that way. He just loves and adores me. And, you know, I mentioned that I was molested when I was seven. I was also raped twice when I was 14. And my parents weren't able to help or defend me. And so it really has become my life's work to be that advocate for the for children, for youth, and for the vulnerable who may not otherwise have someone going to bat for them. And I also get so excited by the intellectual and practical solutions that I see because I'm an idealist and I I want peace and I believe peace is possible and we're not there yet but peace can start in our own thoughts and actions and I wanted you know the Bhagavad Gita says don't worry about the fruit of your actions just do the next good right honest thing there's that lovely quote even if the world were going to fall apart tomorrow today I would still plant my apple tree I'm Mm -hmm. just really committed to doing the right thing to alleviate suffering in any way that I can No, you've also been recognized as one of the leaders in the Me Too movement. And I I wonder how you see 
that movement, uh, which has certainly had its impact across the United States, but increasingly around the world. Do you see a connection between that and the grassroots organizing that's been going on? I really do, Milan, because when Tarana Burke said to herself on a mattress on the floor in her apartment 12 years ago, me too, she was tapping into that archetypal pan-human need to be listened to, to be witnessed, to be understood, and to be validated. Bob Keegan at the Harvard Graduate School of Education says, when we really see another person and witness them, we are recruited to their welfare, and we can't unsee what we have seen. And when women share their stories and have the identification, there's something strengthening about that acknowledgement that allows for a little healing and a little possibility to enter in. That kind of dialogue, you know, the consciousness-raising sharing circles, you know, from feminism in the 1970s, there's just a power in it that I, that I can't over—I can neither explain it adequately nor overstate how important it is. And in South Sudan, you know, we essentially had Women's March in a refugee camp. We were singing and stomping and dancing in the space. And, you know, we were raising a kind of high holy hell. And that's what Me Too is about, reclaiming joy and radical community healing. Yeah, that's, again, so well put. In conclusion, let me just raise the um, 2018 Nobel Peace Prize. Yes. Because it was awarded to a Yazidi rape survivor and activist, Nadia Murad, someone we've come to know at Georgetown, as well as the Congolese gynecologist, Dr. Dennis McGuegge. And I, like so many, saw this award as something that can be truly inspirational besides something that was well-deserved by the two of them, Mm -hmm. because it really recognized how sexual abuse is being used as a tool of conflict and why it critically needs to be addressed. And I wonder if that Nobel Peace Prize award to them, how you felt about that, and also whether you think it can help in some ways uh, to mobilize the international community around these issues in the kind of way that you've been discussing in our conversation here. I felt a lot of awe and joy in the Nobel Peace Prize being awarded to those individuals, and I think it does critically raise global awareness about the use of sexual violence and conflict. And I've had the pleasure of meeting Dr. McQuaggay a few times, and I visited his clinic and actually attended fistula repair surgery in the clinic, which, Um. you know, is a really eye-opening experience because they're washing up, preparing for, you know, a really invasive surgery in the vagina with a bar of soap and water that came from, that's in a pail that came from the river. And the electricity went out a couple of times during the surgery. And knowing that the Nobel Committee recognizes individuals who are both survivors themselves and helpers who whose life work is prioritizing the healing of survivors makes a deep statement to all of us that it's something about which we should care. It's historically 
tragic and wrong, and we can be on the right side of history by doing everything in our might to eradicate sexual violence. Well, Ashley, thank you so much for this, for taking the time. Uh, Keep up that idealism that you mentioned. (laughs) Thank uh, you. That you uh, so feel deeply. Uh, Keep inspiring, inspiring us, inspiring so many with whom you meet in very difficult circumstances around the world, and keep making a difference. Thank you so much. You're very kind to me, Milan. Thank you. If you want to learn more about Ashley's work with the United Nations and her upcoming humanitarian missions around the world, visit unfpa.org. Twenty years ago, tens of thousands of women in Kosovo were raped during the war with Serbia. After the war, most of these women said nothing, in part because of the cultural stigma. And for a long time, survivors were not recognized by the government. But that has recently changed. After many years of lobbying by women's rights activists, survivors are now eligible for a pension that recognizes them as war victims. Reporters Valerie Plesch and Rebecca Rossman spoke to some of these women who are now telling their stories for the first time. Rebecca Rossman starts us off. It's a beautiful day in western Kosovo. We're in Peja, a town near the Montenegro border. The sun is peeking through the mountains. It's warm, and the outdoor cafes are filled with locals sipping macchiatos. But the woman we are here to meet asks if we can talk inside. We'll call her Fatmira, though. That's not her real name. Fatmira is nervous. She trembles as she slowly picks up a glass of water. She's afraid of being recognized. This is the first time she's ever given an interview. We've managed to find a corner table in an empty hotel meeting room, but she still makes sure her back faces the door, just in case anyone walks in. 20 years ago, when Famira was in her early 30s, she was raped by Serbian soldiers. We didn't ask for details. It's clear she's still suffering from trauma. But she did tell us that after the rape, she immediately told her husband what had happened. He got angry and told Fatmira he couldn't accept it. They stayed together for a while, mostly for the sake of their kids. But Fatmira says her relationship with her husband never went back to normal. She says she always felt like she was walking on eggshells with him. And a few years later, he left her. Since then, Fatmira has kept the rape a secret. I'm afraid that uh, my kids will find out what happened uh, about me. Famira has been undergoing counseling for nearly a year now to help her process what she went through. A counselor was with us during her interview and helped translate for Famira. But I'm mostly, I'm sorry about myself, about what happened to me. I feel very bad about it. And, and every time that I looked around, I thought about death. It was better to be dead than than whatever happened to me. Famira is not alone. An estimated 20,000 women and men were raped and tortured during the war. The majority have stayed silent about what they went through. 
Now, some are starting to come forward because of a new government pension offered to war victims of sexual violence. When the war ended, veterans and civilian victims became eligible to receive government benefits. But for a long time, rape survivors were not eligible. When I took over the office, I said that this has to come to an end. When Kosovo's former president, Atafeta Yayaga, came to power in 2011, she made the government recognition of wartime rape survivors a priority. It had been something women's rights activists had been lobbying for since the war ended 20 years ago. In 2014, after years of silence on this issue and nasty debates in parliament, survivors were finally legally recognized as civilian victims of the war. Yaga says she still remembers her first encounter with survivors early on in her presidency. They still had the marks of the knives throughout their body, throughout their faces. They had the marks of the shots of the cigarettes throughout of their body. After years of work, rape survivors became eligible to apply in February 2018 for a special lifelong pension of about $260 a month, which is close to a woman's average monthly salary in Kosovo. Only a handful of other countries offer this type of reparation. But so far, less than a thousand people have applied for the pension, only a fraction of those who were raped during the war. Right now, we're driving to northwestern Kosovo, to a village where we're going to meet a survivor and her husband uh, to talk about what happened to her. And she, from what I've learned, she recently received the pension. Emina waits for us on the side of a village road near her home, about an hour outside the capital, Pristina. Emina also asks that we not use her real name. Unlike Fatmira... Emina's husband has been supportive throughout her healing process. He agreed to talk to us. I I feel that I have to support her because uh, I know uh, how much she suffered. I know uh, through what uh, she went. So they weren't people uh, that they did uh, all those things. They were uh, animals. Emina tells us she would like to invite us in, but her husband's family, who they also live with, don't know about the rape. So they take us to a nearby field to talk privately. It's quiet here, except for a few tractors that roll through. But 20 years ago, it wasn't that way. Thousands of families fled from their homes as the Serb paramilitaries advanced nearby. Emina and her family hid in this field. One day, she and her husband were separated, and she, along with her children, were taken by a group of Serb soldiers and brought to an abandoned home. That same night, she and her two teenage daughters were raped. Her daughters managed to escape, but Emina was unable to follow. She had her four-year-old son with her, and he had been injured in a grenade blast shortly before being taken by the Serbs. They were held captive for 22 days, and she was continuously sexually abused by the same soldier. And then one day, the house fell silent. Emina and her son climbed out of a window and escaped. No one stopped them. There weren't any more Serb soldiers at the house or nearby. The war had ended. It was June 1999. 
Soon after reuniting with the rest of her family, Eminem sought out counseling, which means she's farther along in her healing process than many others. Eminem was also the first survivor to apply for the pension. She says she uses the money to buy food and medicine. Her first purchase was a huge bag of flour, 200 pounds worth. She still keeps a large sack of it in her living room to remind herself that she's able to provide for her family for the first time in her life. Because she was the first survivor to apply, Emina's application was processed and approved in less than two weeks. But the process is an involved one. Survivors need to gather evidence, medical records, testimonies, therapist notes, which are examined by a special committee. So far, 911 survivors have applied, but only 190 applications have been approved. Because of all the paperwork and scrutiny, applying can be a daunting process, especially for survivors like Fatmira, the woman who kept her rape a secret for 20 years after her husband left her. It wasn't until she read about the pension that she considered sharing her story again. So less than a year ago, she reached out to the NGO where the rape counselor Leonita works. It was very hard for her. Uh, it was like the first time when uh, the, the traumatic episode happened. It's like the, from the beginning. Fatmira doesn't have medical documents to support her application, but she does have notes from therapy, and she plans on applying for the pension. It's very good for me to at least have a support from the state, uh, to have something maybe just for, uh, just to eat. The international community has applauded Kosovo's efforts to recognize the trauma and sacrifice these survivors have endured for the last 20 years. But former Kosovo president Atif Yayaga says more is needed to ease their suffering. The only time that they will find their peace in their hearts and mind is when they see the perpetrators facing with a justice. To date, only four of Yugoslavia's senior military and political leaders from Serbia have been found guilty by the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. They were convicted of war crimes and crimes against humanity, including sexual violence in Kosovo. No individual perpetrator of rape has been convicted, and the International War Crimes Court was dissolved in late 2017. When we speak about the culture of impunity, it's a global phenomenon starting from the First World War, Second World War, and others. But now is the time to act. Better now than when it's too late. It, it is the right of every victim. That was Valerie Plush and Rebecca Rossman reporting from Kosovo. To see photos from their story, go to our website, giwps.georgetown.edu backslash Seeking Peace. Next time on Seeking Peace, we hear from former FARC combatants making the hard transition into legitimate political and civilian life in Colombia.
Seeking Peace is a production of Georgetown University's Institute for Women, Peace, and Security and Hard Listening Media. This episode was made in conjunction with UN Women. Our associate producer is Allie Post. The show is edited by Ibi Caputo and sound designed by Sarah Curtis with help from Steve Bone. Our production manager is Sarah Rutherford and our executive producer is Kate Osborne. Original music composed by Allison Layton Brown. This show was made possible by the Compton Foundation. We are a new series, and if you liked what you heard, please share with your friends and family. And leave us a rating on iTunes. It helps other people find us. 